Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Brent Robbins, is a professor of psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, where he also directs the Master's in Community Psychology program. He's also editor-in-chief of Janus Head, a journal of interdisciplinary studies in literature, continental philosophy, and phenomenological psychology, and a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Carmi Harari Early Career Award. Um, Dr. Robbins was raised Catholic, uh, became an atheist. Uh, the problems of evil, suffering, big reasons why he stopped believing in God and while he never found a simple answer to why a good God would allow suffering, he did come to understand that there were more layers to that question than he initially realized, and he's going to share the story with us. Brent, good to have you with me. Thanks. Hi, Al. Great to, great to uh, be on the show with you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's uh, go back to when he, the home you were raised in. Uh, what kind? I know you're, you had some Catholicism there. How intense was it? Well, I, my, my parents were not very involved in the church. I mean, I did go to Catholic school, but, uh, you know, we went to Mass, you know, maybe on the holidays. And, uh, you know, so, sometimes we talked about religious and spiritual issues around the home, but I would say it was a very, you know, sort of detached relationship to the church, not, not a lot of involvement uh, other than through school. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when my parents got divorced, my father left my mother for another woman, and he wasn't really practicing at all after that. My mother ended up uh, marrying a Presbyterian and going to his church, and I wasn't involved in any of that. No. Uh, and so I was sort of a bit alienated yeah. in terms from any kind of practice with the church at that point. How old were you when and they divorced? And then my dad's side of the family... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, how old were you when they divorced? I was... Uh, 12 years old. Okay, yeah. And um, so they both went off in different directions, uh, spiritually speaking. Uh, You were 12. Is there anybody in your extended family who stands out to you as a a mediator of, uh, you know, spiritual, a spiritual life? Hmm. Uh, yeah, there are several people. I know my grandparents on my mother's side, um, Anne and Mario, Julian, uh, they were, you know, daily communicants, you know, so I knew, you know, and we when we would go out there, when I would stay with my grandparents, you know, we would go to Mass every day. My grandmother would go to New Mass, mm. uh, and uh, it was just, you know, whenever you'd go to their place, you know, it was very visible, their Catholic identity, yeah. <laughs> so it was... Uh, you know, Sacred Heart uh, everywhere, and uh, yeah, lots of uh, outward signs of their Catholicism. So that was, I really got a sense that that was an important part of uh, their identity and what they were practicing, and, and they, that was definitely an inspiration for me, because I uh, was very close to my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, at 12, after the divorce, are you conscious of becoming alienated from God? Would those words have even meant anything to you? Well, you know, I think it was a little bit, it was almost, It was a bit of a gradual process for me. It wasn't like an all-of-a-sudden event where okay. I felt like I had lost faith. I think that part of it started off pretty early on because my father's side of the family were Catholic. They were raised Catholic, but a lot of them left the Church to become, mm-hmm. you know, non-denominational, evangelical okay. Christians. 
and uh, and so they were joining a community that was pretty critical of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so whenever I was around that side of the family, they would sort of chip away at a lot of my beliefs about the Catholic Church, and mm-hmm. I think that sort of had an impact on me. It didn't. It really didn't. Made for a period of time, I got a little bit interested in uh, the evangelical uh, side of things, but okay. it really ultimately wasn't very appealing to me. But it had the effect of damaging, you know, my trust and faith in the Church, yeah. because I didn't have very good answers to the criticisms that they were raising. Sure. And that kind of planted some seeds of doubt in me, and then when I went on to college, I think that was really the moment when I started to have some problems. I, I, I took a course in uh, world religions where the, where the professor was, you know, uh, an avowed atheist, and really the whole class was like an apologetics for atheism. And it was pretty <laughs> compelling. I mean, it's a problem. Sure. <laughs> you know, he was a smart guy, and he was a pretty good apologist for atheism. And so that, I think, had an impact on me. But it was all throughout, you know, higher ed. There was just this sort of implicit critique of uh, any kind of, kind of uh, faith. It's kind of and, funny, and, and isn't it? Particularly, the Catholic Church was often a target. Yeah, in yeah. General, but yeah. I, I just it's an atheist teaching a world religions class. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> which which yeah, you hire somebody who didn't believe, which you hire somebody who didn't believe. I in learned physics. nothing about world religion in that class. It was, <laughs> it, was it did not. The, what he was teaching in the class was not what the course description was. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh my. Uh, so was when were you were you consciously deciding that uh as a rational person that God didn't exist or was it did you just kind of ease into you know kind of ease into it kind of a practical lifestyle issue Yeah I think it was a little bit of both I think but there there was definitely a point where I I came to a position that I felt I couldn't really address some of the criticisms of theism, and that, to be intellectually honest, I had to admit that atheism seemed to be the most rational Mm -hmm. choice. Did you like that I would say that I didn't like that. I didn't like it, though. Yeah, that that was my next question, yeah. So you were were a a reluctant atheist. A reluctant atheist, yes. If somebody came along with some good answers, I think I was ready... For it, but I really wasn't. I didn't have that. I didn't have access to somebody who had good answers to the questions right. uh, that were being posed uh, right. to me by you know professors in higher ed or, or or by the culture at large. You know, there was a lot of sort of uh, messages uh, just within that I was encountering, whether in mass media through you know satirical. Uh, not necessarily formal critiques, but just the satire yeah. uh, that you see all over the sure. mass media, sort of poking fun, poking holes in faith. Yeah, uh, that that starts to wear on you after a while. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And and uh, does there come a time where you become a doctrinaire atheist, something that you want to share with others and you know, kind of inflicted on people? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I, I think maybe by the time I got into graduate school, okay. I had more of a. I became more of a professed atheist in the sense that in my conversations with other people, when the issue of religion came out came up, I identified myself as atheist and was able to defend that. I wouldn't say I was sort of an atheistic evangelist. I wasn't. I, I never was like a Richard 
Dawkins type yeah. or new atheist okay. that was going out, you know, attacking people's faith. I always kept a, I always had a respect for other people's religions and oh. faith, okay. and a kind of humility that I really was, uh, you know, still learning, and maybe there was something I, I still had to learn that I didn't know. So I didn't have a kind of like sometimes you see in that new atheism a kind of arrogance. Oh yeah, kind yeah. of. You know the answers, and you know there's not a God. So, I mean, depending on how you define my... Some people might say that sounds more like I was agnostic. But I would say in terms... If people would ask me, where, what position would you come down on, I would have come down more on the side of atheism. Yeah. So I think I... And, and these days, atheists tend to define themselves as, you know, if you don't have evidence for God, then therefore you're, an, you know, you're professing an atheism. And I think it was that form of atheism. Like I said, I didn't have an intellectual argument that I felt was compelling enough for theism, and so I felt, therefore, I had to be an atheist. Now, you were in graduate school in psychology, and there are many different emphases uh, in psychology. When I was in when I was in undergraduate, there was, you know, humanistic psychology and behaviorism and then uh, Freudianism. Was there a particular mm-hmm. trend or movement that you were a part of? Yeah, I mean, I went to Duquesne University, and Duquesne University is one of the few graduate programs in the United States that has more of a humanistic, existential orientation. Sure. And so I I was definitely steeped in that tradition. And uh, and there's also really kind of an infusion of uh, psychoanalytic theory with that. Okay. So I got all of that. But I would say it was mostly... The, the the big emphasis was more of an existential and phenomenological form of humanistic psychology. Okay. How did you, or, or did you, did you think that uh, religious faith helped in human flourishing, or was it inevitably uh, you know, created neuroses? Yeah, Um I think my answer at that time would have been a little bit of both. Okay, sure. <laughs> that I sort of would have understood it more from maybe an evolutionary standpoint, that uh, that evolution sort of had evolved uh, our capacity to... I would have come out of a, more of an uh, Ernest Becker kind of approach, Okay, which would... Ernest Becker was an anthropologist, had a big influence on social psychology. Yeah, Denial of Death, it, the important book. Denial of Death, yeah. yeah. So the idea that, um, you know, we evolved this giant you know, cerebral frontal cortex that allowed us to look far into the future, so far into the future that we could recognize the inevitability of our own demise mm-hmm. and the demise of other people, and that if we didn't erect some kind of symbolic system in order to contend with that, then that then we wouldn't be able to cope. Mm-hmm. So I saw not necessarily religion. I would understand religion in that in that context wouldn't necessarily be a formal sort of organized religious system, but it might. But any system of meaning that sort of organizes your life and gives it direction and meaning and yeah. purpose and staves off. So I would the say inevitable that death. was necessary. Yeah, right. And I mean, it, right. In order. To, the manage, in order to manage anxieties around immortality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that you, you've got to find some sort of heroic project or something to uh, keep you right. working. Uh, uh, so when when did uh, you begin to 
take an interest or begin pursuing uh, spiritual things in any sort of formal way. I know your wife played an important role in this. Yes. Yeah, I think my wife played an important role in, in bringing me back to the Mass, because it's interesting. She has a really interesting story in and of herself, because she was herself raised Presbyterian, uh, and, you know, she... I'll tell you what, Brent, hold where she converted to Catholicism. Yeah, hold, hold it there. The music's coming up. We'll take a break. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest is Dr. Brent Robbins, taking a look at his move from atheism into full communion with the Catholic Church. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and with me is Dr. Brent Robbins, talking over his uh, spiritual journey uh, from uh, atheism to Catholicism, and we, we, before the break, we came to the place where uh, he began telling us about his, his wife. When, when you met your wife, or the woman who was to be your wife, was she uh, religiously uh, on fire? I wouldn't say she was religiously on fire. She was attending church. She was going to a Presbyterian church in uh, in the St. Louis, where we met before I moved to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. We both moved to Pittsburgh to get where I went to graduate school. We met in St. Louis. So, I, in fact, I went to that church with her a few times when we were dating. But it was, I think, she didn't, you know, I think she was sort of an irregular attendee and, uh, but she had been, she was a social worker. She had a bachelor's degree in social work, and she was doing charitable work with, uh, in the downtown St. Louis area, in a really very impoverished part of town. Hmm. And she was finding herself collaborating a lot with Catholic charities, and she got to know a lot of very uh, faithful, devout Catholics. And she was just very impressed with those people. They had a big impression on her. Hmm. And I think for that, and some perhaps for some other reasons, she just felt a real attraction to the Church. Yeah. And at that time, she didn't really do anything about it. But I remember her mentioning things about it, and that kind of surprised me a little bit. And then when we moved to Pittsburgh, uh, I think very soon after we moved back to Pittsburgh, I had a, we had a relative who passed away, and we went to the funeral and in, she tells a story about how that Mass was pretty important for her. So he was Catholic. The person who presided over the Mass, was uh, over the funeral, was uh, would become the bishop of Pittsburgh, Bishop Zubik. Yeah. Uh, at that time, he was a priest, had yet, hadn't yet been uh, become bishop. And he just told a really simple, he used a very simple analogy about sort of putting pebbles in a jar. You might have heard the the story before, but, you know, if you put the... If you put the small pebbles in first, it fills everything up. But if you put the really important, the, the big rocks in first, then you can fit everything else in between. And it was a really, it was an analogy that really spoke to her. Like this was the time for her to act on this hmm. desire that she was feeling to join the church. So soon after that, she joined RCIA. And I remember when she told me about that, I was pretty surprised. I, I didn't see that coming. And she began to go to classes and go to mass. And then after a period of time, she invited me to. Easter Vigil Mass, where she 
was baptized and uh, received confirmation. Wow. And that was really something. She was very moved, you know, to tears during that service, and that impressed me that, that this was very meaningful to her. And, uh, I, I, you know, and I love my wife, and so there was something, you know, moved in me when I saw that in her. And then she started inviting me to go to Mass with her after that. And I would go, but like very reluctantly, sort of in a disgruntled way. You know, mm-hmm. had to drag myself there, kind of thing. And when we when we would go to mass, I would, uh, you know, like I wouldn't say the creed, I wouldn't receive the Eucharist because right. I didn't feel that, you know, even though I had been a cradle Catholic, that I really couldn't, you know, assent to right. uh, or profess the faith because I didn't have the faith. Sure. Um, but then, you know, attending the mass started to have it just. It was the intellectual curiosity, I think, is where it began, where I would observe things that were happening in the Mass and just get curious about it. Like, I wonder what that's about. What's the symbolism behind that? Yeah. So sometimes I would do a little research. And I remember I was at the bookstore, just for one example, but it was a very important one, was uh, Scott, I got Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper. Yeah, sure. And uh, that book was it just so it was very accessible. You didn't have to have a lot of background right. in theology or scripture, even to really understand it. He's such a good communicator, yep. and I really it helped me understand the mass in a way that I had never appreciated before. And so I, I really was impressed by that, in, intellectually stimulated. But 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 I think it just something that seemed like a formal ritual that was kind of empty and didn't have any meaning. I started to I started to understand the meaning of it. Yes, uh, you got the bigger story. Way. Yeah. Yeah. I got the bigger story and how it fit into scripture, and I, you know, because I went to Catholic school, I had the background in scripture, so I understood what I understood the scriptural references, and mm-hmm. I never realized how the Eucharistic feast tied into you know Exodus and yeah and, and uh, Genesis <laughs> and the way he you know brings it out it's, and it unlocks you know the Old Testament unlocks the New and vice versa. Right. And I, I got all that. I don't even remember, you know, hearing the, them teach us that, you know, the Old Testament unlocks the New Testament, vice versa. Uh-huh. But Scott really made me see how that was the case, and I was I, that was exciting. It was into, I guess at that point it was more intellectually stimulating. It was, mm-hmm. cur- you know, like a curiosity, you know. Uh, but I, was, I wouldn't have uh, said that I had shifted in terms of my faith at that point. The what? big thing happened, I got my first tenure-track job in... Buffalo, New York, and we moved there, and I had my first son, my first son was born, and that was quite a momentous occasion, because there's something very profound about a person suddenly appearing out of nothing. That's the ex nihilo uh, <laughs> becomes very real when you become a parent, <laughs> Yes, and it changes your life. I think I started to understand what it meant to be a father, and I think being in the role of a father helped me to appreciate God's love for me. You know, this idea mm-hmm. that God could love you. Because so, I, I just had this incredible love for my son, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I think maybe that was an opening for me into being aware of the way that God could love me and, and, and the way I love my son. So I think all that was kind of priming me, but it wasn't getting me there quite yet. And there would be things that, like, we'd, we went to this church and, you know, we brought our son with us, and it wasn't a very child-friendly service, and, like, we would sit down somewhere, and people would move away from us, and that kind of felt very alienating. (laughs) And I was like, these Catholics, see, they're all, uh," you know, and I would just, uh, you know, gripe, you know. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I was looking for things to, like, reinforce my doubt, I think, Mm -hmm. at that point. But there was a moment when we went to, and we found a service that was very child-friendly. We had to drive, like, an extra 15 minutes 
to go to this place that a friend of my wife recommended. And that was a very family-friendly service. What I most remember is the the usher was just so kind to my son. He would say hi to him. He would give him like a little piece of candy or like a, like a nickel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. uh, he, he just paid attention to him and just communicated hospitality to him and to us. And it was a very family-friendly service. There were lots of other children. When you would leave the mass, the pastor would hand out uh, Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, yeah. you know, it was like, it's, it's a simple gesture, but sure. it was communicating, you're welcome here. You and your family are welcome here. And that meant a lot to me. And then uh, we had maybe been going to that Mass a few months, and that usher handed me a flyer and said, hey, we're having a, we're having a retreat. You might like to come. You know, here's a flyer in case you're interested. Hmm. And because I was so impressed with that usher, I wanted to go, mainly because I wanted to meet him. I was impressed with him. I was attracted to him as a friend. Yep. And so I was like, yeah, I'd like to get to know him and some of the other people, and because I was, we, you know, we didn't really know anybody at the parish at that time. Mm-hmm. So I think I was kind of looking for community. Sure. Uh, and, and to be connect with some of these people who seem to be virtuous people, good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anything people. significant happen on that retreat? Yeah, very, that was the big, that was the big, <laughs> what happened? Tell me, tell me. <laughs> so I went to that uh, retreat, and it was, it was, you know, we would have dinner, and we would have a guest speaker, and then we'd watch a video and have a discussion. That was kind of the format. We did that every week for like a few months, and then at the end, we had a full-day retreat. I remember it was a Saturday. We went in, I think it was like 9 in the morning, and then we were there into the evening. But the the, the part that was really profound for me was a period, I think it was a three-hour block, where there was no activities planned, and we were told to just go and pray in silence for three hours. <laughs> and that pretty much terrified me. The idea of sitting alone in silence uh, sounded like, like oppressively boring, I guess, <laughs> 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 my, what my fear was. So th- I, I had a few prayers you know, that they gave us in the handout that I took with me, and I read those in like probably like five minutes, and then I'm like, okay, now what? So I was like, okay, I guess I'll listen. Maybe if, if there's a God, here, here's your chance, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was, and I really, it's hard to underestimate that the sense in which I felt God's presence and God speaking to me mm-hmm. in in ways that were very clear, giving me very clear and distinct messages. That uh, one of them was, I'm going to, you're going to go back to Pittsburgh. It wasn't even like. You should go back to Pittsburgh. It's like, guess what? <laughs> You're going back to Pittsburgh, it's whether inevitable. you like it or not, yeah. which obviously happened. And there's a whole story behind that, the way the earth moved in order for that to happen. Because wow. I, I laughed. I laughed out loud by myself when I when I heard that. <laughs> and uh, Because I thought, there's no way. Like, tenure-track jobs just don't open up, you know, <laughs> somewhere right. that, that's in your specialty in academia. It doesn't work like that, you know? And uh, lo and behold, there's like three jobs that open up in the area. I got offers at all of them. So there, that was very profound. The other, you know, and I got some very, just to go back and continue your research on joy was one of the things, because I had done my dissertation on joy. I got another very clear message to volunteer for hospice. So it was very clear directive for my life. And uh, I was just incredibly moved by that experience and, uh, Afterwards, we had the opportunity to go to confession. And I remember when they brought that up earlier in the day, I was like, no way, I'm not going to be the one <laughs> I'm not going to confession. <laughs> Ain't going to be me. Well, by the end of that three-hour prayer session, I was 
<laughs> headed right to conf- the confessional <laughs> and sat down and did first confession I'd had probably since, you know, I was sort of compelled to go at some point in Catholic school. Yeah. Um, and it was, so I was like, I really voluntarily went. I was just in, almost inconsolably tearful about how I felt uh, over having denied God. Mm-hmm. And the priest was just so wonderful. He really made, <laughs> comforted me and, uh, you know, helped me to, you know, support me while I was uh, really pretty emotionally shaken, you know, during that experience. Sure. It, was, it was a very positive experience uh, going to confession. It was like walking out. I felt like I had lost, like, 150 pounds. Isn't like that weight, something? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. came I off know. of me. You know, I was, like, walking on air. <laughs> and uh, and then after that, I was just became extremely... I was just filled with the Holy Spirit, and I just wanted to wanted to pray. Uh, I, I had I started putting prayers all over my office, <laughs> yeah. you know, on the walls, and I was praying all day. And I'm starting to say the Rosary, and I was telling my wife we should start to say prayers before meals, and it kind of it scared her a bit because she hadn't <laughs> seen me like that, you know. <laughs> oh, Even good. though she was she was at that point, you know, she had passed to the point where she had gone through that conversion where she was really. You know how it is that that, yes. that first period of time you're on a high, you know. Yeah, sure. And, uh, I was just, you know, twenty four seven, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, there, and then there was a point where we just sort of we came together, and you know, we're sort of in the same rhythm, you know, yeah. with each other in the faith. We've and got about that's a... been incredible, incredibly important for our marriage. Yeah, I'm sure. We've got about a minute and a half left, if that, and. Uh, so did you, was it easy for you at that point then to come into full communion, just go back to, you went to confession, and we right. back in? Yeah, so then it was, well, I had, I mean, at that point, I, how could I doubt? I had a direct right. contact with God. I Amen. mean, I didn't doubt. I knew uh, that was God, yep. because I, 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 the things I was being told were not things I would have thought of myself. I literally laughed out loud. Yep. I <laughs> you know, yeah. It was like Sarah, you know. <laughs> When yes. uh, the angels tell Abraham, you know, you're, you're going to have a son, and she laughs. That's kind of how my response was. Yes, yes. Like, no, really? great. I'm going to Pittsburgh? <laughs> I, so I, I, I would have never come up with those things on my own. So it was, I really had a sense that this was God speaking to me. And then at that point, I was I did a lot of research. I read, you know, I read uh, Rene Girard and Robert Spitzer and all, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Fingers, ontological yeah. You know, I had all, and I began to see that there was the full intellectual tradition that we'll allowed me to have the, you we'll, know, an intellectual congruence. We'll, we'll talk again, Brent. That's a fantastic story. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. <laughs>